if you feel a passion for something, if you feel a story needs to be told, those two things together, that's incredibly powerful, isn't it? One of the reasons that this podcast has gone off is because literally nobody was doing this. And it's like, you know, the fact that, you know, a production team who produced dozens and dozens and dozens of hits that virtually everyone knows, and no one had done a podcast about them, that's just incredibly odd. I'm Ben Hart, and welcome to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. I've been in the business of telling stories for more than two decades as a journalist, communications advisor, and now heading up my own storytelling-led comms agency, Fireside. In this six-episode season of Storycraft, you'll hear from all sorts of storytellers who will share what they've learned about making stories that simply worked. So whether you're in the story business think storytelling might make you better at what you do or you just love a good yarn i promise you'll take something away from these conversations who gets to decide whether we look back on a piece of culture as good or bad highbrow or lowbrow we mistakenly see these things as somehow objective truths popular wisdom says apocalypse now was an absolute masterpiece and showgirls an unmitigated disaster. And yet we also know that the stories that dominate our culture are invariably seen through the prism of those in positions of power and privilege. They hold history's pen to the exclusion of the marginalised. It's something that Matt Denby thinks about a lot. Along with collaborator Gavin Scott, Matt has decided to wrest that pen away from music's gatekeepers and attempt to tell a new story about the iconic but much maligned British pop pioneers Stock, Aitken and Waterman. The result is the podcast A Journey Through Stock, Aitken and Waterman, an oral history of pop's greatest ever hit factory. For much of the 1980s and early 1990s, British music producers Mike Stock, Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman were the world's most prodigious and influential music team. They made countless hits for Kylie Minogue, Rick Astley, Bananarama, Mel and Kim, Dead or Alive and Divine. Saw, as they came to be known by their fans, helped these artists find worldwide mainstream success. But the music was also enthusiastically embraced by the gay community, who knew much of Saw's work borrowed heavily from the music that originated in gay clubs in the 1980s. At the same time, Saw's output was derided by music critics and cultural kingmakers as insubstantial and vapid, songs made by neighbour stars with next to no musical value. That's a story Matt was aching to rewrite when he launched the Saw podcast last year. The task was not just fuelled by a deep conviction that Saw deserved more credit as music makers, but also his own personal experience as a gay teenager who found salvation in music that told him he had a place in the world. Whether you like 1980s pop music or not, it doesn't really matter. This conversation isn't really about music. It's about one person's mission to dig into music history and change the story. More than that, though, it's about who gets to write the first draft of history and the capacity for anyone with a microphone and a bit of will to flip that script. For Matt, the podcast's origins are firmly planted in his youth in the western suburbs of Adelaide in the 1980s, in a context he describes as intensely homophobic and violent. 
In Matt's own words, the music of Saw became a lifeline in a troubled and difficult childhood. I went through a lot of intense, violent bullying at school. I was existing in a broader social context where everyone from school teachers to radio DJs would be openly homophobic. The culture was stifling for me. There was one main radio station that most people listened to, which, you know, the the basic playlist would be Dire Straits and... uh, you know, uh, stuff like that, which was, you know, it is uh, culture was heavily, mainstream culture was heavily mediated through the tastes of a small number of white heterosexual men and their interest in rock music. And the fact that these sort of aspects of queer culture that was coming through in Stock Aitken and Waterman would break through occasionally without any radio support, without any mainstream media support, was incredibly electrifying to me because I I saw myself in this music. I felt something when I listened to it. I I could listen to, you know, bloody uh, Stairway to Heaven and feel nothing. And then I'd listen to You Spin Me Round Like a Record and it would completely electrify me. And it gave me a sense of self-esteem. It made me aware I wasn't alone. And it was like, you know, shining light to get me through to the other side when, you know, eventually I, you know, finished school, went to uni and then started meeting a lot of other people sort of more like me and uh, found a sense of place in the world. So we'll come back to the role of Saw in your life in a second. But before we do, for those who are unfamiliar with Saw, why were they so important culturally? Saw were incredibly important for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, because they were renegades who came from the edge, bringing sounds from the very edge of culture, you know, uh, that came from gay clubs, that came from soul clubs. You know, they didn't just produce quote-unquote gay dance music like Divine. They also did soul stuff like, you know, Princess. The fact that these records broke through big time in Australia in the mid-'80s where soul and dance music was not given any play. There were very few radio stations that just played rock music, easy listening. There was huge hostility and racism and homophobia in society at that time. They brought gay artists and black artists to the fore, gave them success, and then that success led to mega mass market success with the likes of Kylie Minogue, who single-handedly changed the music industry in Australia, despite having no radio support whatsoever. She was selling thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of records all around the world, bringing new sounds mainstream to people who were just sick to death of, you know, the the bland Aussie rock that was so predominant at the time. And the backlash that that created, I mean, I don't know if you remember the I Hate Kylie Minogue t-shirts and all that sort of stuff. It's just this absolute rage, this sheer rage, mainly from straight men who felt their power slipping away. That's what I take from this. I mean, even, you know, in the 70s in America, the disco sucks movement when people were burning disco records and running running them over with steamrollers and so on and so forth. Well, why? if you don't like disco, why would you just not listen to it and not go to discos? Why would you destroy it and burn it and create these violent spectacles? That was similar to what we saw in the late 80s in Australia with the intense hatred and loathing of Kylie Minogue. It's this violent, violent reaction that we no longer control culture and people are thrusting these celebrities skyward into stardom without 
our say in it anymore. That's what that was, that rage. And SOAR was all a part of that. It was a cultural revolution. I mean, people now in Australia don't understand. You know, you can turn on a radio if you're one of those people that still listens to radio and you can hear dance music. You can hear all sorts of stuff. In the 80s in Australia, you could not hear anything. All you heard was rock and easy, easy listening, stuff that appealed to the programmers, to a bunch of guys with mullets and bomber jackets who are programming this stuff and saying what you could not couldn't listen to and what was good music and what was bad music. Yeah, so clearly you and other people like you who love Stockack and Waterman and their music saw their output as vital. But as you touched on just then, what was the other more dominant narrative about Saw that existed? In Stock Aitken and Waterman's heyday in the 80s, overwhelmingly the mic in terms of music media was controlled by straight men. The culture then in the 80s in Australia was very, very, very guitar-based, rock-based. That was what was considered to be quality music. That was not allowed to be questioned. There was a lot of hostility towards dance music, uh, quote-unquote gay music. Now, Stock Aitken and Waterman's sound, they had a lot of different sounds, but the successful sound that became their mainstream sound definitely had its roots in gay club music. first hit being Divines You Think You're a Man, which was uh, came out of uh, sounds that came out of America originally. Producers like Bobby O, that was very much a gay sound that came out of gay, gay dance clubs. Then that got filtered through all the way through to mass market acts like Kylie Minogue, you know, Underneath I Should Be So Lucky, which is this big sugary pop song. You've got this driving, high-energy synth track running through it with the beat that comes straight from gay clubs and i think that kind of music was very alienating to a lot of the people who were controlling the media at the time and definitely homophobia was much more rampant then in in public than it is now and you definitely had a shade of that you know this is music for gays it's it's awful it's trash so that's a strong memory of mine from the time that there was a lot of open hostility to their music. So, Matt, maybe just take us back to the origins of the podcast um, and also how central that idea was that the theme would be changing the story that you saw in your teenage years about Stock Aiken and Waterman. My initial idea for this podcast came as a consumer because I was looking around at what was available out there and there were no dedicated Stock Aitken and Waterman podcasts, which I just found astounding considering how important they were culturally back in the 80s and the early 90s. So it was frustration because I wanted to hear this stuff. Then I would occasionally find an episode about them in, in people's podcasts. They might do a dedicated episode. And so very often, a lot of the information that they were talking about was completely wrong. So I was just frustrated. I'm like, someone's got to do this properly. This is an important part of culture that's not being serviced or talked about. And my friend Gavin and I, Gavin, my co-host on the podcast, would often talk about Stock Aitken and Waterman. Our work during our downtimes, because we were passionate about it as as kids, and we still listen to it now, we really enjoy it. So we started to say, well, maybe we should do a podcast. Maybe we should do a podcast. And then as that started to crystallize into something that we're actually going to do, the notion of putting saw in its correct historical context and reorienting the narrative that started to develop organically out of there so it wasn't originally the driving force originally the driving force was out of 
you know, a desire for entertainment, but then sort of the deeper levels of it started to crystallise. Yeah, I mean, so so clearly this is just more than kind of audio fan art. This is, you know, deeper than that. When you started it, did you expect that you would unearth this kind of deeper subtext of sexuality and identity that runs through the podcast? There is a strong subtext that runs through any any uh, examination of culture, especially pop culture, where you have things like uh, racial issues, sexual issues, gender issues, all those sort of things, they do play into it. So sometimes it's going gonna, it's gonna to come through. It's interesting to me that so many people are picking up on those little references. So it, it, it's uh, as someone who's producing the content, that's quite fascinating to me that so often when I talk about this podcast, people do mention it. So it's something that's probably looming more broadly than I expected when we went into this. And so how, how does that feel? It's interesting. It's interesting because certainly on a superficial level, I can look at for example, you go on to maybe a, a Facebook group, which is a Stock Aitken and Waterman fan group or whatever, and I can see that the vast and overwhelming majority of people who are there are probably, I, I will presume to say, gay men. So there's a thread there, but it's something that I probably haven't thought about as deeply as I should have, but it's all there, isn't it? Because it's coming to the surface when I talk about it. So listening to the podcast and also talking to you here today, I'm just really curious about how conscious that kind of decision was to have it as a subtle thread that runs through, but it sounded like that was just kind of something that evolved naturally. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's sort of, uh, I I touched on that in the episode about uh, Bananarama by Venus, which is like it's a huge turning point for Saw because it's the point at which, you know, overtly quote unquote queer music was taken on board by a mass market act or an act with a huge mass market appeal, Bananarama 3, attractive young women who were hugely uh, appealing to young girls and also boys who wanted to date them and gay guys who wanted to hang out with them. So they had a mass market appeal that, say, like Dead or Alive didn't because some people were horrified by the overt queerness of Dead or Alive or frightened by Pete Burns. And then, you know, Venus being the turning point, it's the template because then you have these edgy dance sounds incorporated into acts with mass market appeal like Kylie Minogue, which was to come very soon. So I think we've established that in a subtle way, and I guess also in a not so subtle way, this is not just the story of Stockake and Waterman, but this is also your story and also Gavin's story as well. Does it feel to him like that's the case? And is it something that you two have spoken openly and explicitly about? No, not really. I mean, I I, I think if you listened, I don't want to speak on his behalf, but I think that my connection with Saw is, I'm, I'm slightly older than him. So I was right straight in the heart of the whole sort of divine dead or alive era. And it meant a lot to me politically 
and as a gay man or a gay kid at the time, I've never had that conversation with Gavin. Isn't that interesting? But, he, you know, he's got a real passion for the music. And, you know, you'll hear that in the podcast where he's very focused on on the music and the performance of the music. And perhaps maybe I'm a little bit more focused on some of the social element, but maybe that's up to the listener to uh, decide. You're listening to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. In this episode, a conversation with Matt Demby, podcaster and journalist and host of A Journey Through Stock Aitken Waterman. If you like Storycraft, check out The Story, a new digital publication that dives headfirst into the world of stories, exploring their power and mechanics. Head to the hyphen media or go to the link in the show notes to check out pieces by some of Australia's leading storytellers including Clementine Ford on the joy and challenges of writing non-fiction and Dorian Linsky on the British island that used the power of story to drive some of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates. The story is for anyone who tells stories, loves stories or is just curious about how and why they work. Yeah, so now I'd like to move on to some of the more stylistic or structural choices that you made in making the podcast. I mean, obviously, it's a big story. It stretches out for, you know, a decade and a half. And you could have told this in, you know, 17 different ways in terms of how you how you tackle a musical canon, I guess. So you've done it by, you know, taking a very specific route, which is to almost go song by song through the history in chronological order. So why did you come up with that structure as a storytelling device over and above kind of other options that you may have had? Well, that idea came from Gavin. Uh, Initially, when I was starting to think about this podcast, I was thinking of doing it as a sort of a greatest hits kind of thing with some just a compilation of the best songs and the best ideas. But Gavin had this idea to do a complete chronology the whole way through. He's a bit of a completist. He likes his charts and his lists. And I think that was a driving force there. But it turned out to be a fantastic device for telling the story, the development of a saw as a commercial force, as a cultural force. And as you go through the years, you start to sort of draw in sort of wider social uh, changes that were happening at the time as well. So it's it's turned out to be a wonderful sort of uh, a narrative device for telling the story. And thank you, Gavin, for coming up with that idea. We haven't actually calculated how long this is going to take us, but it's going to take a while. What we don't really know is what the end point is going to be. One possible end point is when Matt Aitken left in the early 90s and it's no longer sore, but potentially we could go on for a couple more years after that because, you know, they got back together and uh, Stock and Waterman were working together and then uh, Stock and Aitken were working together without Waterman and so on and so forth. But my gut feeling is that the story naturally ends in the early 90s, which gives us a couple of years of uh, solid storytelling to go, yeah. So, Matt, when we think about the kind of the long arc of the Saw story, obviously, like a lot of pop stories, there's a long tail to it, slow disappearance into, you know, music obscurity. Is there a danger that the structure means that it might just kind of peter out? Oh, yeah, definitely, for sure. But I think there's there's an interesting sort of dramatic structure built into all of this because 
it was a really dramatic rise and fall because they started to pick up commercially around 87, 88. Then 89, they hit absolute maximum commercial impact where, you know, the charts were absolutely full of their work. And then 1990, just like just like that, they fell right off a cliff. So I think, you know, there's as much to be talked about in the fall as there is in the rise. And I think that that is going to in itself make an, an interesting way to sort of wrap this story up. Are you mapping out the the climax to the to the story already? I think it's naturally already there. Like I think the story is this. When they started, they were the renegades. They were making club-based music that was considered to be you know, borderline offensive to mainstream society. So they were the renegades, they were the outsiders making this really edgy gay music. And then they moved into, and then they moved into soul music, which was sort of quote unquote more respectable with songs like Say I'm Your Number One by Princess. And then by the time they reached their absolute peak they weren't the renegades anymore they were the mainstream like this one little independent label was just completely dominating the charts to the extent that they were you know half the top 10 sometimes in the uk so they went from being the outsiders to being the industry and then they lost that you know pop cultural edge of being the outsiders and then new outsiders came along which was like uh, you know, house music in the, in the dance world and uh, guitar-based pop like the Brit pop and, you know, the baggy scene and all those sort of things came along and swept them away. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the story of pop music that, you know, things that were once on the very edges of culture and were almost dangerous to being, being uh, the establishment. And once they became the establishment, that was the beginning of the end. So I reckon a real strength of the podcast is just the chemistry between you and Gavin, and you both bring such different but complementary things to the storytelling, and you both play really, I see, really specific roles there. Um, Can you talk a bit more about why that dynamic works so well? Well, we met at work. um, I believe he was probably working for TV Week at the time we met at a Australian Idol press call. So it was like the early 2000s sometime. And then we worked together on various different magazines at different points. And most recently we worked together on Who magazine. And, you know, in downtimes, coffee breaks, we'd end up talking about Stock Aitken and Waterman. And that sort of established we have this shared passion. It's the shared passion that brings us together, but we're we're quite different personalities and quite different skill sets. Hi, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Chartbeats, A Journey Through Stock Aiken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au, but possibly the most excited person about this episode is Matthew Denby. Hi, Matt. Hi, everyone. How are we all? Yes, Gavin, it seems you know me far too well. Like he's, as as I referenced, he's just so good at arranging, locking down interviews, so on and so forth. Whereas I I think I'm sort of more tied into sort of broader narratives and threads. That's what really drives me in, in, in terms of my career. I've always been primarily a writer. I've done lots of celebrity interviews, but the thing that I enjoy and the thing that I've enjoyed most is writing. And I think that's, you know, forming narratives and, and creating stories and structures. So I think those two different skill sets, although, you know, he's got skills in a lot of those areas as well, and, and the different personality types, because he's quite passionate about 
the sort of the more technical aspects and, and chart positions and lists and 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 I'm sort of more driven by the sort of social implications of some of this stuff on some levels and what it meant to me personally, although he he shared a lot of great stories about what it's meant to him personally. I have a story to tell you about the dance routine, Matt. I was obsessed with Venus and I was especially obsessed with the video. I learnt the routine from beginning to end. (laughs) Bit of a steps precursor there. So obsessed was I with Venus that I used to go 10-pin bowling at my school sports. So I was 11 in 1986 and so I went to 10-pin bowling. And you know how you can enter your name in the bowling, you know, on the little computer, you put your name of, of what you want to be. Most people actually just put their name. Anyway, I called myself Venus Dancer. (laughs) Of course, that was too long. It came up as VD. I didn't understand why people were laughing at me. I didn't know what a venereal disease was as an 11-year-old. But yes, thanks to Venus by Bananarama, my sexual education was improved as well as my dance move. So you've actually had quite a phenomenal strike rate in terms of getting artists to agree to come on the podcast, almost to the extent where you're having to beat people off with a stick to come on. Um, And I think that's probably because... You know, it is very much a celebration of the music and there's a real joy in it. But also I assume that that has been one of the main things that has really resonated with the audience as well. Yeah, that's interesting. When we originally conceived this, I think in my mind at least it was just going to be me and Gavin talking and occasionally we might be fortunate enough to get uh, some of the talent involved. Like in the very first episode, we we had one artist after we spoke about four singles and spoke to one ar- artist, Hazel Dean. And then straight after that, it just escalated to where almost every artist we've been able to speak to, unless they're, you know, sadly passed away or uh, there have been a couple of people who've declined, but for the vast majority of people that we've approached have been very happy to do it. Do you know what, to be honest with you, Gavin, it didn't feel like that at the time. I think Melanie and I, we put our trust in them. You know, musically, that was their thing. They'd written hits for Princess. Um, so musically, no, there was no, like, we want to get involved. We want our say. There was none of that. We were really happy for them to, to kind of get on with it. What we did have a say in and, and was ours was our image and our dance routine. Some of them needed a bit of convincing. Most of them didn't. So that's been a real joy. I think the feedback that we've got from them and from the audience is that people just love the fact that we are being so reverential to this music. That's been a real like people are literally overjoyed by that, that they feel really validated after years of having to put up with people mischaracterizing this music or people who know virtually nothing about it, holding the mic and saying, no, you can't listen to this. This is rubbish. This is disposable. This is crap. Well, it's not disposable. It's living on. It's gathering more and more people who are into it. I mean, Rick Astley is just huge. And Dead or Alive will never go away. It's constantly remixed, re-released, sampled. It's still a hugely present part of the culture. So, no, this is not disposable pop culture. It's pop culture that's just as important as some of the things we're constantly told are important, like, you know, Stairway to Heaven, which means nothing to me. It means something to some other people. So, yeah, it's it's been a thrill that people are so passionate about this. I've had some lovely, lovely letters and emails you know i've been in the media a long long time i've done some things that are quite high profile but i've never had this kind of feedback i've never had people writing me really emotional letters and what are they saying to you in the letters thank you 
this means so much to me. I feel really moved by this. It's something that's, you know, when music is really important to someone, especially, you know, when you're a teenager, it does, I think, literally become part of your soul. It's a part of your emotional being. And when people feel feel that's validated, it's just it can be incredibly powerful and moving to them. So just to close out the conversation today, if you were approached by somebody who was really interested in chasing their passion to tell a story and perhaps even change a story, what would be some of your advice to them? Yeah, I'd say if you feel a passion for something, if you feel a story needs to be told, those two things together, that's incredibly powerful, isn't it? I mean, one of the reasons that this podcast has gone off is because literally nobody was doing this. And it's like, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, a, a production team who produced dozens and dozens and dozens of hits that virtually everyone knows, and no one had done a podcast about them, that's just incredibly odd. Well, maybe it's not odd considering the the context in which they existed where the mainstream media at the time was intensely hostile to what they were doing and it had been decided by a bunch of people within a very limited demographic that it was rubbish and it wasn't worth talking about and for some reason people didn't reassess that until now and they they didn't question it well i did reassess it and i did question it i saw no one was talking about it i had a passion to talk about it i knew there was a story to be told and it's worked out wonderfully well. So anyone out there who is in a similar boat, they can see that, that, that there's a, a gap in the market, there's a story to tell and you feel the passion of it, go for it. That was Matt Demby, host of the excellent story-changing podcast, A Journey Through Stock, Aiken Waterman. Like this podcast, it's available at Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is episode five of a six-part season of StoryCraft. If you like what you heard, why not subscribe to the podcast and also spread the word about StoryCraft. Tell your friends, colleagues, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Doing this helps more people find the show. StoryCraft is produced by Dashiell Lawrence of Retrospect and presented by me, Ben Hart. 